some words from Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We're going to bring our prayers of praise to God. And starting from now, for a while at least, we're going to be using the Lord's Prayer every week. So if you are a first language English speaker and aren't sure of the words, they are in the front of the hymn book inside the cover and it's the second version down that we usually use. When we get to the Lord's Prayer, please feel free to pray that in your own first language. We enjoy the miscellany of voices in different languages as part of our prayers of praise here. So let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. We come to praise you, God whose creativity is the source of all that is. And on this autumn morning, we thank you for multicolored leaves swirling in the breeze or crunching under our feet for the cosy comfort of socks and jumpers, coats and boots, for the smell of new workbooks and the brittleness of new pencils, for scalding hot cups of tea and deliciously chilly ice cream, for sunny days when we can ramble, cycle or play outside, and for wet days when we can curl up with a novel or watch our favourite programme on TV. On this autumn morning, we thank you. We come with our confessions, God whose redemptive work restores us to you. On this morning, in the quiet of our minds, we say sorry. Sorry for the unkind thoughts we had or words that we spoke. Sorry for the selfish actions we took or the generous ones we did not. Sorry for the things we wish we could change but know that we cannot. Thank you, redeeming God, that as Jesus promised us, you forgive us and help us to live our lives more fully, hopefully and lovingly. And so following his example, and in the words recorded in scripture, we join together to pray aloud in our own languages, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy First reading this morning is from Jonah, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. 
the last two verses of that book. The Lord said to Jonah, This plant grew up in one night and disappeared the next. You didn't do anything for it, and you didn't make it grow. Yet you feel sorry for it. How much more, then, should I have pity on Nineveh, that great city? After all, it has more than 120,000 innocent children in it, as well as many animals. And then from Paul's letter to the Philippians, the first chapter, starting at verse 21. For what is life? To me, it is Christ. Death, then, will bring more. But if by continuing to live, I can do more worthwhile work, then I'm not sure which I should choose. I'm pulled in two directions. I very much want to leave this life and be with Christ, which is a far better thing. But for your sake, it is much more important that I remain alive. I'm sure of this, and so I know that I will stay. I will stay on with you all to add to your progress and joy in the faith, so that when I am with you again, you will have even more reason to be proud of me in your life in union with Christ Jesus. Now, the important thing is that your way of life should be as the gospel of Christ requires, so that whether or not I'm able to go and see you, I will hear that you are standing firm with one common purpose and that with only one desire you are fighting together for the faith of the gospel. Don't be afraid of your enemies. Always be courageous, and this will prove to them that they will lose and that you will win because it is God who gives you the victory. For you have been given the privilege of serving Christ, not only by believing in him, but also by suffering for him. Now you can take part with me in the battle. It is the same battle you saw me fighting in the past, and as you hear, the one I am fighting still. The next few weeks, our focus for preaching is going to be extracts from the letters of the church at Philippi. And these are the extracts from that book that are identified in the Revised Common Lectionary. Now, I think you all know that the lectionary gives you four readings for every week. An Old Testament reading, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel reading. And my practice generally is to just pick two of those, occasionally using a third one as the call to worship. And sometimes it works out that the, the psalm that Paul chooses is the same one, not always. So today I picked Jonah and part of the letter to Philippi. And because I messed up, we had a much shorter ver- extract from Jonah than was planned. We should have had the bit where, and it is my fault, not Grace's fault, totally down to me, uh, we should have had the bit where Jonah is frankly having a huff. He's been out to Nineveh, he's preached what he had to preach, the people have repented, they've turned back to God, and frankly, he's a bit fed up, and he just says to God, do you know what, I knew that's what would happen. I knew that you would let them off. I knew they'd repent. I didn't have to do this, and frankly now, I just want to die. So he storms off, and he sits down, and waits to die, and he falls asleep. And he wishes himself dead, and whilst he's asleep, a tree grows up and provides him some shelter. And he's happy. He likes this tree. And then the tree withers and dies. And he's very cross that the tree withers and dies because it was nice to sit under the shade of the tree. So he gets a bit cross with God again. 
you know, why, why did you do this? And God said, well, you know, you, you liked it when the tree grew and you expected me to look after you. Why wouldn't I look after all those people and all those animals in Nineveh? Now, whether this is a literal story or a mythical story is something that people have argued about since before Jesus was born. But it's a story that centers on a selfish man who, when God tells him to do something, runs in the opposite direction. And when actually God comes good on God's graciousness and generosity and forgiveness, complains, well, I knew you'd do that, so I didn't need to go through all this. And I wonder if the lectionary writers have set that in parallel with the reading from Philippians because of the contrast it offers. The Apostle Paul is most probably writing from prison. And whilst he is there, he is awaiting or undergoing a trial on very serious charges which could have the potential for a capital sentence. He could be executed if found guilty, at least in the view of some commentators. Uh, Every time you read a book on Philippians, they have a different view, and I just ended up confused by the end of it all. But Paul is somebody who's in a bad place. He's in prison, he's on trial, the consequences could be very, very serious, and he is writing to people far away in Philippi. And after his opening greetings and some comments on the mixed motives of other people who are preaching the gospel, he begins his letter in earnest. And it's not for nothing that the lectionary chooses to begin with one of the most radical and debated verses in the whole of Scripture. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you open any serious biblical commentary, you will find several pages devoted to this verse, setting it in its first century cultural and religious context and trying to decide what it is that Paul is trying to do by saying this in this letter. It's a verse I've struggled with over at least 30 years consciously. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I quite like being alive, thank you. I don't want to die, even if it is gain. Only perhaps now, and in the last couple of weeks as I've reflected on this, that I begin to get a sense of what he might be saying. Unlike Jonah, who sees death as an escape from his predicament, Paul isn't depressed or suicidal. He's in prison, reflecting on what may lie ahead of him, both in the immediate term and eternally. And rather than a binary or dualistic division of life and death, which sees them as polar opposites, he's beginning to see that actually they're part of a continuum. Earthly life now is participation in Christ. Sure, there are the the limitations of the here and now, the physicality of his body, aging, things that are going on around him. But now to live is Christ. And as he passes through death, he will participate more fully in Christ beyond those limits. In other words, death is not the end, nor is it a kind of sharp change, but a continuing journey on deeper into Christ. It's a view characterized by hope, 
a view that this life isn't all there is. That this life can be changed and transformed by faith in Christ in a way that is healthy and life-giving and life-affirming. But beyond is something yet more wonderful. I think what he's saying is death as something to be feared is no longer the way he thinks. Actually, death is a gateway to life in another form, a door through which you go and experience something differently. I remember when I was training to be a minister, I had a Methodist minister trainee friend who used to refer to end-of-life as being a bit like an airport waiting room, the departure lounge. And you go up to customs and you go through and the door closes behind you and you go on to a new land, a new experience. You're still you. You haven't changed, but you can't go back. Well, you can in reality, but in the eternal sense, you can't go back. And I found that it was a helpful way to see it, that death is a gateway through to a continued life. To live is Christ, then. What does that mean? A phrase that actually Paul uses in some ways elsewhere. In Galatians and in Romans, he refers to Christ living within the believer. And in Colossians, he refers to being hidden with Christ in God. I think what he's saying basically is that his life is so radically changed by his faith in Christ that now it is all about being a follower of Jesus. It's all about becoming more Christ-like, whatever that means, whatever that involves. But it's a process. You can't arrive, you can't be a perfect Christian, a perfect example of Christ in this life. Only beyond that gateway called the grave. Is that possible? To live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul has these ideas swirling around his heads. And were we to read it in Greek, the circularity would be much more evident than an English translation suggests. We don't actually have a literary form or a linguistic framework that allows us fully to enter that first century Greco-Roman mindset. It's not two options. It's not that life is bad and death is good, or life is good and death is bad. He has two good options. One is a personal one. One is the thought of his eternal promise of living in Christ. And then the other is a communal one and a temporal one. His life on earth, his life among people, for however long that goes. And that's why he's torn. He can't say, I'm rejecting that one in favor of that one. He can't say that one's godly and that one's not godly. They're both good. So he's torn between two options. His own desire to depart and be with Christ and the greater necessity, as he perceives it, for him to continue to serve the churches. Which one should I choose, he asks, Probably, rhetorically. It seems to me that Paul is facing an ethical dilemma. He could focus on himself, on what will bring him fulfilment, 
both now and eternally. Or he could focus on what is good for a wider context, what will bring missional fulfilment or at least advancement of the gospel. And neither of them's bad, but the emphasis is different. Perhaps the ethical dilemma that Paul faces is, do I seek what is best for me, or do I seek what is best for Christ? Perhaps what he's thinking is, which is the greater good, that that serves me, or that that serves community? Paul's answer to this question he poses in English is usually rendered as, I don't know. The commentators suggest that might be better expressed as, I can't say, or even, it's not for me to say. Perhaps there's a hint of, well, thank goodness, it's not my choice to make. Paul might dream of a day when arrests and beatings, insults and trials and imprisonment come to an end. But he doesn't seem to be desiring or advocating martyrdom. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And right now the reality is that the urgent need of the emergent church means there's plenty for him to do. And so he plans to do so with energy, joy and commitment. I don't know about you, but I can't help feeling that if I was one of the original readers of this letter, I'd feel a bit relieved at this point. He's actually concerned about us, our lives, our community, what's going on for us. I find this rare insight into Paul's personal one both helpful and challenging because it seems to suggest some important principles to consider for our own personal ethics. Sometimes choices are easy to make. It's obvious which is the better course or the worse course, but by no means always. How we make our choices can be every bit as significant as which choices we make. In a few days, we who live in Scotland have a unique opportunity to make a choice that has a local and translocal consequence or consequences. And I wonder if each of us examines our own hearts honestly. What motivates the choice we make? However we vote, and whatever the overall outcome, I have a suspicion that our inner motivators will be really important in what follows. Whether next Sunday we're sitting here feeling really happy or really disappointed, really enthused and energised or really scared and terrified or any mixture of the above, and I suspect we will be any mixture of the above, there's something more important here about what goes on inside us, what motivates us, how we live together. To live is Christ not just for Paul, not just for the individual, but for the church, the body in which every member matters, the yes Scotland and the no thanks and the I haven't got a clue and I wish someone would decide for me. 
the one body of Christ in which differentials of nationality and status and gender are meaningless. It doesn't matter if you're a university professor or a road sweeper. It doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult, a man or a woman, straight or gay, employed, unemployed, whatever it is. You are equally important in the body of Christ. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that what what Paul has to say is this is what matters for the community at Philippi. Whatever happens, he says, whatever happens, or as the good news says, above all else, or the NRSV and the King James say, only. Above all else, whatever happens, only live in a way that brings honour to the gospel of Christ. That's hardly rocket science, is it? We know that. Even if sometimes we struggle a bit to work out what it means to do it day to day. Above all else, whatever happens in the referendum, only live in a way that brings honour to the gospel of Christ. Above all else, whatever happens in relation to our redevelopment project, only live in a way that brings honour to the gospel of Christ. Above all else, whatever happens in your life, in my life, in our life, only live in a way that brings honour to the gospel of Christ. As I read the thoughts of different commentators on the closing verses, I realised how much subtlety we lose in English translation of the letter. The, rich, the verses have a rich imagery for the original uh, readers and hopefully a bit of help for us. Paul goes on to talk about the kind of evidence that will reassure him the Philippian church is keeping on track, whether or not he's able to visit them, whether or not he is able to continue to live. And perhaps these are useful for us to remind ourselves of. Firstly, he talks to a common spirit. And for those who like a bit of Greek, the reference here is not a pneuma, but a psyche. Perhaps something like an esprit de corps, a community spirit, something that's not that easy to define, but is self-evidently present. The church isn't just a collection of individuals who happen to believe in Christ, but a body, an entity with identifiable shared values and concerns. Not merely an organisation, but an organism. Something that lives and is capable of growing and developing. One of the other commentators I looked at made the suggestion of soul siblings, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, bound together not by flesh and blood, but by our new identity in Christ. And so even if we sometimes squabble and even if we sometimes disagree, that bond remains and holds us together. Then Paul talks about striving together side by side, using the Greek word from which we get our word athlete. And that seemed to remind me a little bit of our summer series looking at discipleship through this idea of being part of Jesus' team, which we viewed through the lens of the Commonwealth Games. 
We need to stick together, to work together, to encourage each other when it's tough. When somebody is feeling down or anxious, cheer them up. When somebody is doing well, praise them. It's not rocket science. Of course it's not rocket science. This is really what Paul says. Stick together. Work together. Be together. Because sometimes it will be a struggle. And sometimes you will feel like giving up. And lastly, he gives us a note of total honesty. That this path, this life if we live it, is not easy. Struggle, disappointment, failure, disillusionment, all the negatives we can think of won't just vanish because we live the right way or believe the right things. But then that's precisely why Paul's dilemma is not a dilemma. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But the urgent communal needs trump his personal desire. Actually, being in it together, sticking together, working together, living together, this is what it all matters in the end. To live is Christ. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. And pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. Whatever happens on Thursday, we have something very unique and precious to carry us forward as a community of believers in Christ, trying with God's help to live as Christ in this place and to be and to speak good news into a world where there is a need for good news. Amen. And now we bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us all pray. We come to you this morning reflecting on that most precious gift that we have all received, the gift of life. Some come in the full vigour of childhood or youth, others in their middle years, yet others in their retirement, and finally those who come in the twilight of the years when much more of their life is behind them than before. And yet we do not measure the quality of our life by simply adding up the days, the months, and the years of our existence, but rather by the richness of our experience in the good times and the bad, and for the faithful, the awareness of that presence of the divine which has accompanied us all along the way. We know that what distinguishes humans from the animals and all other creatures is our own self-awareness, and it is this faculty that allows us to reflect on our life, our past and our future. We give thanks for the rich treasury of our memories in the good times and the bad, and we also give thanks for our capacity to consider our future and we would seek the wisdom to live out our faith in all that lies ahead of each one of us. But our self-awareness is most real in the present time and the present moment, and we would pray for strength and courage to live out each day in the light of your presence among us. You are God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and we would grasp that promise for the living of this present time. In Philippians, Paul says, what is life? To me, he says, it is Christ. And he goes on to say that you have been given the privilege of serving Christ by believing in him and, if necessary, suffering for him. And so it is in that spirit that we would come today seeking the resolve to live our lives to your glory and in the service of others. We would first of all remember in our prayers all who suffer at this time, especially we would remember before you those in Liberia, a land scourged by the Ebola virus. We would hold before you the nation of the Ukraine, torn by division and warfare and civil strife, the nation of Syria, where thousands of people are homeless and starving, the nation of Iraq and the nations of Israel and Palestine where conflict is their daily diet. Lord, we hold up these lands and situations before you and ask that you will support all who seek to bring healing and peace with justice to these parts of the world. We would ask you to bless the efforts of all those who work to bring medical medical aid and relief of every kind into these dreadful situations and we pray that they may be kept in safety as they work among the victims of war and disease. We pray for all here at home who are going through difficult times. We think of those presently in hospital or being cared for at home, and we ask your blessing for the sick of body and of mind and for their carers. We think of those who have responsibility for bringing up children. We know how important it is that young people be given a good start in life that they may grow up to make a positive contribution to the life of their families and of the wider society. We pray for those who find the burdens of work almost overbearing and those who cannot find work despite all their sincere efforts to do so. Teach us all to be a loving and caring society that we may help one another in whatever way we can. We We pray for our church here at Hillheads Like the wider society, we too are approaching a time of challenge and change. We are reminded in Scripture that unless the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain who build it. So may each and every one of us be challenged to take our active part in cooperating in the venture of rebuilding God's house here. May the life of Christ dwell in us so that we may demonstrate our commitments by our gifts of money and talent and time thus showing our willingness to respond to the challenge facing us over the next few years. We give thanks for the goodness and generosity of so many here and pray that they be willing to participate fully as we are called to the days ahead. Finally, a prayer for ourselves. Amidst the clamour of politics, the demands of work and of everyday life, the responsibilities of caring, the strident voices of the media, and all that fills our minds and hearts and that saps our energy. We pray that we might find time to come apart in our own minds and hearts, to find peace as we listen to the still small voice that reminds us they were each one of us children of God and that you care for each one of us now and always. Amen. So we pray together. God be in our minds.